Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday morning. Welcome to Turfgrass Epistemology. I'm Travis Shaddix. Welcome. We're going to be looking at possibly the shortest Turfgrass article in the history of Turfgrass articles. It's probably, well, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve paragraphs long. And it doesn't even make a page. <clears throat> so look forward to that in a little bit here. It's a fun little article. We'll go over that in a few minutes. It's Thanksgiving weekend. Um, I hope everybody's looking forward to Thanksgiving. I will be on today and tomorrow, but not on uh, Wednesday or Thursday. So Thanksgiving and um, my kids are out of school on Wednesday and Thursday. So they are in school today and tomorrow. So I will be here today and tomorrow. I, on, what was it, Thursday last week, I was going over an article that I I was talking, I, I didn't realize it until after I, you know, hung up. And I was talking about, um, it, it was talking about thatch and uh, quality and, you know, management practices and so forth. And I'd mentioned throughout the article that it was, the verbiage was a little bit odd. It was strange, like they were saying things like, led us to believe this and the data tended to do this or it was like sort of non uh, it just was inappropriate language for a scientific article it was the article by murray and juska from 77 and i had mentioned throughout like five or i gave five or six examples throughout the article about why it didn't really and just didn't the language just didn't seem to really fit really well in the scientific literature. I mean, I think the results were probably fine. I mean, the, it was a good article, but it just seemed odd. And I was I was mentioning that throughout the article as a means to show something at the end, and then I didn't show anything at the end. <laughs> so sorry about that. I'm gonna do that real quick here. So I, so if you miss Thursday, can't remember the title of the of the um of the podcast i can't remember what it was called what i called it but it was on thursday november the 16th of 2023 so just go back and if you if you didn't watch it or see it or hear it then go back and pick that up but i wanted to wrap it up <laughs> by exp explaining why it is it was important that I was mentioning that the language just seemed a little bit uncomfortable to me. And this happens, you know, unfortunately more regularly than it should when I'm reading articles where there's something just not quite right. The language isn't quite right. Or they're saying something that just doesn't quite match up with, you know, how it should be written. It just didn't seem right. And um, so what I'm, what I'll, this is the article here. I'm bringing it up for those listening. It's called Effect of Management Practices on Thatch Accumulation, Turf Quality, and Leaf Spot Damage in Common Kentucky Bluegrass. I, do, I went over this on Thursday. Um, but let me just briefly explain why I was why I was mentioning that it was not sitting well with me. And it's not a means to disparage or you know demean the content or the authors. But it's important that you read these articles or when you read these articles that you don't assume just because it's in a scientific journal that it is you know flawless or it should be you know taken as the absolute truth right so i wouldn't <clears throat> i wouldn't do that and when and i think over the years i've developed sort of a just a i don't know just a sort of a basic understanding or feeling of how things sort of flow throughout scientific articles. And this one didn't quite really match that. And occasionally that happens with articles with me. I'm like, something's not right. And I sort of, and then I start investigating it or kind of looking into it. And I'm like, oh, that's why that is. And I didn't mention that. So let's, let's explain. So this is the article. And I, and I mentioned things like it tended to, and we don't use words like tend to, or phrases like tend to. 
in scientific literature because the data or the results were it either was or was not in other words like it either differed from the non-treated or it did not or it either differed from another treatment or it did not it reduced thatch or it resulted in a reduction of thatch or it did not um we, and we have to we have to have some sort of measuring stick to, to know what that is and in our world it's statistics right and generally we'll we'll use the 95 percent range so in other words when we say like it's the p-value is five percent so the probability of saying that it's different when in fact it's not different is five percent or less in other words there's a 95 percent chance that we're correct that's sort of like the benchmark of in our world of turf grass management that scientists if if we're 95 percent confident that we're correct then we'll say yes they differ but if it's 90 percent or 85 percent or less then we will say they don't differ anyway I'm just saying that you sort of understand as you're reading through these things, you kind of gain this basic awareness of how things flow and things we don't say. We don't say tend to. We don't say believed to do this or, um, you know, we just it's just strange. And then when so then I read it and I went back and I and I and when I started feeling it felt weird. And so I go back and I start looking at the authors and generally you'll see you'll see the authors. And you'll see a, a superscript up here by the author's name. Oftentimes, sometimes it's a one or two or asterisk or whatever it might be. And that gives you an indication of like where um, more information about that author or those authors. And if you go and this one has a sub superscript of two and you can go down here to the footnotes of that page and you can read more about, you know, what it is they're trying to explain about the authors. And in this case, the number two says research agronomist field crops lab, Bentsville, Agricultural Research Center, the ARS at the USDA Bensfield, Maryland. The junior author is now deceased. So this uh, Juska person apparently had passed away before this was published. And the J.J. Murray um, author was still alive. But it says they were from the Beltsville Agricultural Research Center at the Agricultural Research Services at the United States Department of Agriculture. And when I read that, it sort of all made sense at that point to me. I'm like, oh... Whenever, whenever you have authors from that are not strictly in the world of science or academia, where they're regularly publishing and regularly writing things, they're regularly reviewing articles, they're editing articles, they're involved with editorial boards, you know, that's the scientific community that they're deeply involved with. When you have authors that are outside that, that, you know, community or that group, oftentimes you'll get language like that where they're. The language, the, the articles, like I said before, the article's fine. The results are probably fine, but that sort of confirmed to me that, oh, there w you know, I did have good reason to feel uncomfortable with some of the language because language like that, that is in this article generally won't occur when you have authors that are deeply involved with the scientific publication process. And these authors, they may have been, I don't know, they may have been on the board for all I know. But when you're, when you're not from university, you're not from a dedicated scientific program, oftentimes like vague language and inappropriate language can kind of creep its way into articles. So on, the only reason I mention it is not to beat up on the authors or this paper. I, I liked the paper. It was, it was okay. Um, but it's just to express to you that it can go to the extreme sometimes. And I'll give an example of that when we get into um, soil testing and nitrogen application rates, which who knows when that's going to be. But there's an article and I read it and I was like, man, something is just not right about this article. They're making claims and saying things in a way that is just, it just didn't sit right. And then when you read it, the author was an, an owner in the company that provided that soil test, right? And it doesn't invalidate the data or the results. Um, but it certainly should give you, you know, pause about whether or not how, how confident you should be about the results, right? When someone when an author has a financial vested interest in the outcome of the paper, um, it doesn't mean the outcome or the results are wrong. It just certainly provides a little bit of concern. And some skepticism is certainly warranted as to whether or not you should hold those results in a, you know, very, very confidently or not. So that's the reason I mentioned that on Thursday. And then I ran off and forgot to actually explain why, I, why I was saying all those things about why I was not comfortable with that, with some of the language in that paper. 
But more times than not, I will say more times than not when I'm reading a paper, nothing ever like that happens. I don't ever feel uncomfortable. The words are not unweird or um, just vague or ambiguous. And it's usually, you know, 95% of the time, it's everything's fine. I don't even think about it. But most of the time when I'm reading an article and I do feel strange about it, I'm like, something's not right. More more times than not, I end up finding that the authors have some sort of, um, you know, vested interest or they're not completely scientifically, you know, um, I don't know, mature or they don't have a lot of robust um, writings where they've developed those writing skills over time. Usually that's, that's, that's what I find. So just keep that in mind as we're, as you kind of progress through, if you choose to start reading these articles, definitely do not read an article and say, yep, that is what I'm going to do because that's what that article said. You know, that's, that makes total sense. And I'm going to do that. Don't do that. Um, it's, 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 we're, we're, we're in science and what does science do? Science builds models. So the, ter- that's the, the model of turf grass science is, is, has been established and is continuing to be built by every single article that goes into that model. Right? So that's just one article that goes in and it kind of helps build the, build the scientific model of turf grass science. And, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everything in that paper is valid and true. Right. So just be mindful that, you know, be skeptical, be, be careful about just immediately implementing results from a single paper. We would prefer to look at the body of literature, the body of evidence and see what that says. And if one paper conflicts with the body of evidence, that's fine. We just want to make sure that, you know, how, how confident should we be with that? And, and, and a great example of where one article could completely conflict with the body of evidence, but yet still be correct is Einstein's article in what was it, 1918 or 19, right? When all the physicists in the world said he was wrong and Einstein said, no, I'm right. And they said, prove it. And he said, okay, if I'm right, then you should be able to see this specific star in this exact location during a during an eclipse of i think it was 1918 when the eclipse was and i think i don't remember where it was there was a war going on at the time they couldn't get it all done anyway there was clearly evidence that einstein was correct and all the physicists were wrong and they had to wait till the next full solar eclipse which was several years later before einstein became world famous because at that point he, he was shown to be correct he made a prediction he said if i'm right it'll be here and if it's not there, then I'm wrong. And he was right. And all the physicists that, that were naysayers and rejected his philosophy or, or his, uh, his hypothesis were shown to be wrong. And he was shown to be right. My point being is that one article coming in that conflicts with the body of evidence, it, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It could be correct. It could change things. It adds to the scientific model. And it's from the model that we want to make decisions, not from a single paper that goes into it. Okay, in, in Einstein's case, his one paper completely changed the entire model of physics. That's very rare. Um, but that's what we want to look at as a whole. You know, what does the body of literature say? Not just not just one article. Um, what else? Um, I am I, I a couple people posted some stuff online on my YouTube channel about some questions and stuff in an article or a, a podcast I put up, put up. I'm trying to figure out how to do all this stuff. I'm trying to navigate the worlds of, you know, online social media stuff, and I don't have a clue what I'm doing. So what I'm, what I'm trying to do is load the episodes as podcasts so that people can listen to them. Um, and rather than while they're driving or while they're at work, rather than have their phone on YouTube all the time. And I'm trying to figure that out. And in the process of figuring that out, I, I, it looked like on YouTube, I could load it as an audio podcast. And I think I did that, but when I did that, it loaded it. It looked like it was a new article or something, and some people actually watched it or, or listened to it. So that's very, very nice of you all to, to to listen to that article. But they were asking like, "There's no audio or there's no video here or whatever." Well, I don't know really. No, I'm I'm trying to figure out the podcast stuff. So at some point in the very near future, all of my um, episodes will be on the podcast platforms. In fact, there are most of them are there right now. I just haven't really pub or publicized it cause I'm not entirely sure I'm doing it right. Um, as shown by my mess up on YouTube podcast. So anyway, it went up, it went down and in the meantime, I'm still trying to work it out. So that's what that whole mess was about this weekend when some people were texting me trying to figure out what 
what the what the video problem was. Okay, so bear with me while I figure out this whole mess. Um. So that so that'll be up in the next couple of weeks. I'll I'll figure out some way to uh, pr- promote it and let you guys, if you want to, just listen to it. Which apparently a lot of people do. Just they just want to listen rather than watch the whole thing. So that's that. Uh, the sh- and in the meantime, all the shorts that were on my YouTube channel have been all removed by YouTube for the what second or third time, something like that. Whatever. It's not YouTube's fault. I just keep screwing it up. So I'm figuring it out, guys. <laughs> I appreciate your patience as I navigate these uncharted waters. I don't I don't know what I'm doing. So um, I think I'm sort of getting to the point where I kind of know what to do to get it to where I want to get it to without all these backups and changes and deletions and all these things. So if you're looking for one of the shorts or a little quick little blurb or whatever, I think they've all been deleted. And I'm not going to go back and put it up for a third time. So whatever. <laughs> I'll just I'll just have to go forward with what I what I go forward with. So that's that. Oh, what else? I spent God, four hours, five hours this last week getting my automower connected back. If anybody ever wants some input, if you're thinking about buying an automower and you're like vacillating, don't really know eh, this or that, is it good? Is it worth it? I'll be happy to give you my input. Um, I don't know, shoot me an email or give me a call or something because I've been dealing with automowers since probably 2000 and what? 17, 16 on a, on a research level. And I've had an automower on my lawn for three years or four years. I can't remember. And there's a lot of benefits to it. There's no question. I, it'll be a long time before I buy a gasoline powered lawnmower again. I'll tell you that or, or hire someone to mow my lawn. It'll be a very long time before I do that. But with the automower comes a lot of problems. <laughs> okay. Comes a lot of little things I didn't think of. And, uh, one of them is the wires getting cut. That's the biggest problem. Pain in the ass. Freaking wire gets cut. If you think you're going to put that wire in and it's going to be a okay, like a dog fence wire or whatever, you can forget about that. It gets cut. And, uh, and, and so anyway, I, tr- I was trying to troubleshoot it. And, and to troubleshoot a wire that's in the ground, I don't just lay it on top of the ground, although I did this last, this last time because I got tired of it. You can lay it on top of the ground and stake it in, and eventually it'll work its way down into the below the grass, which it does work that way. But really, it's better to take the time and actually bury it an inch or two below the soil if you can, because inevitably somebody's going to come along and catch it or cut it, or lawnmower's going to catch it. Who knows what's going to happen? And I couldn't find the cut in my wire, and I went out and troubleshot it. And and there's a couple little tricks you can do to kind of find which side of the of the loop is cut. But when I did that, there was no signal anywhere, which told me either something's wrong with the whole system or there's a cut on both sides of where I connected it in. And come to find out there was six or seven cuts in my wire. So every time I found a cut, I thought I solved the problem and I connected it with these little connectors and then it didn't solve the problem. And I pulled it and found another cut, found another cut. Well, I had a huge tree fall over and it cut the wire. So when I reconnected it, I thought that was it, but it actually cut the wire twice. Anyway, I've had probably seven or eight or maybe nine cuts in that wire in the last three years or four years, however long I've had it. It's going to happen, but God, I, I mean, you'd think at some point it'd be like, okay, I've got it all figured out and you, you won't have any more cuts, but you're going to cut that thing for sure. But on the flip side, I spent three or four hours out there trying to troubleshoot it and finally figured it out and got it all working. It's all working now, but that's minuscule compared to the time it would have cost taken me or the money it would have cost me to actually hire someone to mow my lawn or me to mow it myself, you know, which I don't want to do. As you all know, I, I have no interest in doing anything to my lawn at all other than enjoying it. So that's the reason I got the automower. But every now and then, once a year, once every other year, you're going to have to go out there and spend some hours either maintaining the wires or maintaining the base station or, you know, doing something to it to kind of keep it, you know, up to date. And it's not that big a deal. I'm acting like it's a big deal. It's not. It's just 
you know, you quickly become an, a, an amateur electrician real quick because you're trying to figure out all these electrical connections and loops and signals and all these things. So I did that. It's done. So now hopefully when this, when the season comes in, whatever, April or May, it'll be ready to go and I can just plug it in and don't have to mow my lawn next year. Mowed it every week this year. I got tired of that. Oh, well, anyway, so that was what I did this weekend. Fun. I had a um, problem with my son, as you know. He's autistic, and he gets he loses track of time, and he loses his memory sometimes. He forgets what he's supposed to do, and he got lost on the way to school or on the way home from school the last week or two. You guys remember that probably. Had to call the police, and it was a mess. So I went and got an Apple Watch, and... Because my thought was, my, the Apple Watch, well, I'll, I'll know where he's at, and I can ping him during the day or at lunch and say, hey, you know, stay focused, you know, you're doing good or whatever. Well, the Apple Watch doesn't work in his school. So I was like, okay, whatever. I mean, it, it, it didn't function. So I went to go download a third-party app called Find My Kids, which is work, which works specifically on the Apple Watch. And I spent... Five days, maybe more. I went to Verizon twice, bought the watch, didn't work, couldn't get it to download the app, took it back. They wouldn't fix it, couldn't fix it. It took it to the, I took it to the Apple store, said, all I want to do is download this app. That's it. Oh, no problem. Couldn't get it to work. Got me another watch, took it back, returned it to Verizon, went back to Apple, bought another Apple watch. Tried to get, I said, I'm going to stay in the store. I got there at like six o'clock at night and it closes at eight. I said, I'm going to stay in the store until this app's downloaded. He's like, ah, no problem. Da, da, da. Eight o'clock, no app, not working. And oh, we don't know what's going on. Da, 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 da. There must be a new app operating system. You got to download that. So I went home and downloaded the operating system on these watches. It takes like five hours to download. Four, it took on this watch. I just did it overnight. I just let it run overnight because it was taking four to five hours to download this iOS system on a watch. Took it back. Downloaded the app, or tried to download the app, wouldn't download. Took it back to Apple. A third time, I've gone back to Apple. I said, all I want to do is download this app. That's it. All I want to do. It's not complicated. And they said, sure, no problem. Couldn't download it. So they took my phone. And the reason I'm saying this is about five minutes before I came on today, none of my lights would work in the house because they're all on my phone. Couldn't get them to work. The reason I couldn't get them to work is because Apple reset my phone because I thought it was my phone. And it wasn't my phone. Come to find out, if anybody wants an Apple Watch and you want to track your children or have it set up as a family member so you can talk to them, they can have their own phone number, you can call them, they can call you, they can be away from your phone, they can be wherever and it'll still function as a separate entity, a separate item, which is what set up as a family member is supposed to do. If anybody wants that and you want a third-party app, you can't do it. <laughs> Because Apple banned third-party apps on Find My on on family member setups on the Apple Watch. So, and the only reason I found that out is because finally a technician in the Apple Store who has their phone set up or has their watch set up as an as a Find My as a God God as a family member phone. She goes, yeah, yeah, you can't do that. After iOS nine, you can't on the watch. You can't set up a you can't download third-party apps on family members' phones. I'm like, well, <laughs> thanks for telling me. It took me five days to to have someone in, in the Apple store to tell me that you can't download a third-party app on a member's family member's phone. So don't think you can do that if you want your child to have a family member account on a watch. So fun, fun, fun. All right, enough about my ongoings and my back and forth with all sorts of stuff. Let's get into the article. This article is, is like I said at the beginning, super short. It's not long at all. We'll go through it in probably 10 minutes. We'll be done. The chat. Hey, super TA and Brady lawn sauce still in Japan, still on vacation. Lush Chad OSU turf man. Good morning. Randy from Bulgaria. And Looney. Got some good eclectic, uh, an eclectic group here this morning. Eshot. I don't recognize that name. Eshot. I'm sorry if you've texted or chatted before. I just don't recognize that name. I don't recognize the chat name, the Chad name either. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, 
I'm really bad about checking the, the chat while I'm here because I'm a one man a run man show here. So it's hard for me to kind of keep track of everything. By the way, to show my ignorance, what is the 100 icon with the thumbs up? What does 100 mean? I've seen that before, like on chats and things. Does it just mean like 100% or something? I don't know what that means. I'm completely ignorant when it comes to these things. Um, I get the cup of coffee, Super TA320. I get that. <laughs> and I get the thumbs up. But what? I don't know what the 100 thing. Uh, how do you even do that in chat? Like put in, do I just type in the word, the numbers 100? See, that doesn't do that. <laughs> I don't know why you guys do these things. Um, but I've, I've, if someone can tell me what like 100 means, I can, maybe it means like we're, we're here 100% is the way I'm taking that. I don't, don't know what that means, but sorry. It doesn't take long for you to reach my level of ignorance. <laughs> okay, so Super ATA says yes, 100%. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're here 100%. So uh, we're going to go an article article today, and tomorrow we're going to go over another article that, that is one of the earlier articles with um, the white rot fungi. This is before the the burnt paper we talked about on Wednesday night when he was using lay case, or no, he was using um, no, that wasn't the burnt paper. It was uh, the um, I think it was the Paul Raymer paper. They were using lay case in the greenhouse. Well, before that paper, there was another older article in the '90s that use that concept and um and we're going to go over that tomorrow but today we're going to talk about a paper published in hort science in 1976 and it was in volume 11 and the reason i mentioned that is because when when hort science came out it was well in the 70s and i guess this was volume 11 so i guess it would have been maybe in the late 60s when it came out if you have a different let's see volume I don't know. I don't know how they set up their volume counts back then. But usually, when when journals open up and they start, they generally have fewer restrictions or fewer um, criteria to get published because they're trying to get articles in, and they're trying to get their their journal reputation built up and their you know their impact factor built and all these things. And oftentimes, when you read some of these articles from the really early journals well, when the journals first started oftentimes you'll find journals articles like this and you'll see the same thing even in art journals that will open up today like agricultural research letters um and some of the they were when they first opened that up i guess it was in 17 or 18 i can't remember it's you got to pay to get in there now because it's open access but early on they would let articles go in for free and they said hey we're only going to allow free articles until this date and then after that, you're going to have to pay because they're trying to get the, they're trying to prime the system, basically trying to get the articles out. And I think that's probably what happened with this article where it's so short, which is nothing wrong with being short, but there's not a lot here. And I, and you would never get this published in Hort Science today. The, you wouldn't even get it past the editor's email. You would send it in and they would just immediately send it back and go, what is this? But back then, the reason I'm saying that back then it was very common. It was, this is very normal for it to have short, succinct, you know, articles that are not particularly robust or profound. They're just straight to the point. It was very common back then. This article was actually, or this research was done in Hawaii. And I know um, that, well, I don't know, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that um, we have at least one person in the turfgrass community that lives in Hawaii, Mr. Ray Ito. So um, he might know these are these authors for all i know i have no idea but anyway this was done in hawaii and by murdoch and Barr and published in hort science which today hort science is is a top tier journal i mean i wouldn't put it above oh and i'm going to end up doing like a top 10 turf grass research journals by the way i'm going to probably do that either as a video and post it or maybe i'll do it live but i'm going to let give you guys an idea of the ranking in terms of these journal or journals and the intent is not to put one above the other in terms of like this one's better and you shouldn't read the other ones it's just to provide you an idea of how confident you should be in general from the journal articles in, or from the articles in that journal and hort science is is up there i mean i wouldn't put it above crop science or jeq or agronomy journal or soul science america journal but it's definitely up there i mean i, I have a great deal of confidence that hort science um 
is a, is a you know the, the articles nowadays that go in that journal are pretty sound pretty solid um so anyway yeah, this was done in hawaii and it's extremely short let's read through it and um the reason i mention this is that actually before we re- get into it I, the, I, the <laughs> we've all come across bugs in the jugs commercial microorganisms right and even today, it amazes me the amount of the lack of moral or ethical boundaries people, salesmen and companies will go to to sell people just junk, you know. Most of it's a grift, you know. There's, you know, there's, there's a lot of charlatans in our, com- in, our, in our industry. And I'm not saying that all bugs in the jugs are, are a grift, but... That's a pretty good sign when someone walks in and tries to sell you a bunch of bugs in a jug, what's, what side of the aisle they're on. They're certainly not on the side of, uh, aisle of evidence, you know, because there's very rarely, extremely rarely will you find pretty solid evidence that some sort of bug or microorganism is going to have some profound effect on thatch. Okay. But it can make sense if you're not, you know, knowledgeable with the literature because thatch is broken down by microorganisms, right? So when you, when you, someone comes in your door and says, Hey, you know, you got a thatch problem and you go, well, yeah, I actually do have a thatch problem. Well, thatch is broken down by microorganisms and this product has, a, has, you know, a million microorganisms per milliliter or whatever, some crazy number they throw at you. Right. And you're like, well, maybe, yeah, maybe I should do that. That, that might work. Well, no, <laughs> that's, that's what's referred to as a charlatan. He doesn't know. He doesn't know that those bugs do that. He's just trying to convince you to, to, to spend your money on it. Okay. There's only a few products that have any beneficial impact on thatch. As far as I'm, as far as I know, none of them are bugs in a jug, but you still see these people showing up nowadays, trying to sell you a bunch of junk, you know, trying to get your money because they can be convincing. Bugs do break down thatch. And bugs are in this jug. Therefore, bugs in this jug should break down the stats. <laughs> it's a grift. And so years ago, I was in, I, I used to manage the, uh, the lawn care um, division of a fertilizer company in central Florida. And they were a small portion of that company. But they had, you know, they had a few million dollars in sales. And one of the, comp- one of the customers that was fairly, you know, uh, reliable and fairly loyal to to the company I worked for it was a company uh, north of Tampa, and and um, I don't think you'll mind if I use his name. The company's name was McGuire Great Outdoors or Beautiful Outdoors or something along those lines. And the owner was McGuire, awesome guy. Dude was so solid. He really, I he he. When you go in and talk to to McGuire, he would just say, "Hey, you know, I'm not really sure what I'm doing. Can you help me?" That's that's so profoundly valuable to, to be able to acknowledge your shortcomings openly like that and, and, and accept, Hey, I'm, I'm flawed. And how can, you know, what can you provide to help me? I need areas and I need help in this area. And I remember the first time I went in his, his office, I've sat down with him and we were just chit chatting and he goes, well, I want to know how you can help me. I was like, well, what can I do? And he said, well, I got problems. He goes right there on the floor. There's a bucket with a bunch of bugs in it. I don't even know why I bought it. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> he goes, I don't even know what it does. I don't even know if it helps me, but for some reason I bought it because the guy sounded convincing or whatever. I said, well, unfortunately you probably got taken. Just the reality it is, you know, you probably, you probably got taken and it happens all the time, guys. It happens all the time with these these grifters that come in and try to sell you a bunch of stuff that they don't know if it works or not. And there's certainly very little evidence to indicate that it does work, but yet you still feel compelled to buy from them or you, they convince you and it happens all the time. You know, it happens to me. I still buy vitamins, even though all the evidence in the, in the literature in the, in at least in the United States it says that if you are on a normal, healthy American diet, you probably uh, taking vitamins for a normal person probably doesn't do anything unless you have some sort of pre-existing condition or something, you know, but yet I still buy them. So I'm being taken right now. <laughs> so well, what are you going to do? I'm trying to, trying to get better at what I do, but the same thing happens in turf. 
And I felt so sorry for him, you know, and, since, and I worked with him for a few years and we kind of tweaked his program and kind of got some of that nonsense out of his program. But anyway, that stuff happens. And that's what they say right here in the, in the beginning of this article about bugs in a jug and thatch. So here we go. If I can draw on this. Yeah, I can. So we're going to be, we're going to start right here. Oops, that's red. That's green. How do I usually have this in red? Um, we're going to start right here. I don't know how that got changed. Let me change this to, yeah, that's okay. All right. So thatch in turf. Hang on. Sorry. I'm, give me a second here. Thatch and turf is defined as a tightly intermingled layer of dead and living stems and roots that develops between the roots. We've all heard that definition. And that, as Dr. Barrett mentioned, the definition is, doesn't really do it justice. I, I don't want to speak for him, but I'm, if I remember what he said, basically is we've used that definition over the years, but it probably needs to be fixed because it's a lot more going on than just, just that. But it is composed of materials high in lignin content, meaning the vascular strands of stems, leaf sheaths, and nodes of stems. Those are very difficult to break down. Because of its lignin content, thatch is resistance to breakdown by soil microorganisms. And we've shown that in many of the articles we've already gone through. It's, it's the lignin that's the problem. The cellulose is generally broken down so fast. It, it's maybe a little bit similar to like the analogy of like just simple sugars versus carbohydrates a little bit. Simple sugars are going to be almost instantly broken down, whereas carbohydrates take a little more time. Well, imagine that. And then turning it in, like, say, the fat in the human body, that's got to be broken down to go into carbohydrates to go, you know, so it, it just, it's a component of the, of the turf that just takes a very, very long time for microorganisms to break down. Thatch is undesirable because the aesthetic value of the turf is reduced. Water infiltration is impeded, which we, sh well, we showed an article that didn't really support that. The water infiltration is slowed initially. But once the thatch layer is moistened, then it did not impede water movement through the thatch. Disease incidence is increased. Scalping due to mowing is increased. Rooting depth is decreased. Heat and cold tolerance reduce and proneness to iron chlorosis increase. I'm going to pull those three articles, <laughs> particularly the one on iron. He's citing three articles here. I'm going to pull those probably and go over them next week. At least the iron chlorosis. Maybe I end up going over the iron chlorosis one in a month or two. But a lot. Basically, what he's saying is there's a lot of problems when you have excess thatch. But I wouldn't. Again, I wouldn't assume that all this is true until I went and read the articles that he's citing. Because certainly infiltration can be slowed initially, but if, as long as it's moist, the thatch doesn't seem to have too much of a problem letting the the moisture, the water through, because the pore size is so large. But it has to be moist, so it's not hydrophobic. Cultural practices such as vertical mowing, aerification, and top dressing are used to control thatch, but all are time-consuming and temporary, temporarily detract from turf appearance and interfere with its use. So that's true. I mean, there's the literature basically will agree with all that. Vertical mowing, aerifying, top dressing, you're going to have to shut the course down or shut the field down. The homeowner is going to know that there's some top dressing on their lawn or it's going to be tore up and from vertical mowing or whatever. That, that's all true. I don't know necessarily if there's a valid and consistent way to avoid that, but you know, there are some products, but the idea here is that he's making a case as to the normal management practices are have short, have shortcomings. It's that simple. Recently commercial products have appeared, which are advertised at, why am I missing? Why am I having such a problem with this today? Which are advertised as, here we go which are advertised as being effective in breaking down thatch when applied to turf in small amounts. While the active constituents of these materials are not listed by the manufacturer, it is implied that they contain an inoculum of microorganisms, which aid in the decomposition of organic material. So you, ha you have to understand, and like I said, I was in the, I was in the distribution, very, very peripherally involved in manufacturing of turf grass products for many years. And you have to understand that there's, and on many products like these, these bugs and jugs, there's not really much, at least back then, there's not much oversight. We can just put, they can just put whatever they want in a jug and call it whatever they want to call it and say, do whatever they want to say in most states. States like California require some, at least some evidence. But 
they can say whatever they want. And that's the reason this channel's here, Turfgrass Epistemology. How do you know what you know? How do you know that that product actually does that? That's what I hope people learn to develop, that skill. You don't necessarily have to ask the question, but mentally, when someone walks in your door and says, this product's going to launch the space shuttle for free, okay, I, uh, you know, mentally you should be thinking, eh, doubt it. Pretty healthy skepticism in that regard. And the same thing holds true in this. Now, these bugs are going to break down your thatch. You don't have to confront the person and don't have to be, you know, rude about it. But mentally you should be thinking, hmm, well, I'm aware that mechanical thatch removal is generally the way to go. I'm also aware that that results in some poor looking turf sometimes. I'm also aware that there's a product that we went over called that contains an enzyme called lacase. I'm sure uh, I'm aware that that might help reduce the development of it, the rate. But I haven't seen anything about bugs breaking it down yet. Right. I haven't seen it. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but I haven't seen anything. So when someone comes in the door and asks you those things and says these things and tries to sell you a bunch of stuff, it doesn't mean you, you, I mean, you don't have to be a jerk about it. You don't have to be, you know, resistant to it, but skeptical about it, you know, healthy, healthily skeptical about claims, right? I'm pretty convinced that it's probably not going to do that, but I don't know if it's not going to do that. So it's up to them to show that it will do that. Oh, here's a, here's a flyer from University ABC that showed it increased root depth by 20%. Couldn't care less about that stuff, guys. I'll go into that in great detail, believe me. Those university flyers, I'm not university, but flyers from companies that contain university data. If it's not published, I couldn't give two flips about it. Couldn't care less about it. I care about it in the sense that it's it's affecting our industry. It's infecting our industry. I care about that. I care that you're being convinced to do something potentially against the body of evidence. I care about that. But I don't care about that as a means to convince me. And I hope at some point over time we begin, you know, maybe to develop that that same healthy skepticism. You know, somebody comes in and tries to sell you a bunch of bugs in a jug ridiculous so anyway he's saying the same thing in 1976 and I, I bet right now there's someone listening to this that has some some experience with someone coming in and trying to sell them a bunch of bugs trying to break down the thatch you know so anyway they, these products contains microorganisms the objective of this study was to evaluate the effectiveness of two of these materials. One was called bio-dethatch, and one was called thatch-away. And you can insert any brand name you want to insert today, okay? Dethatcher, thatch-r-less, thatch-away, thatch, you know, whatever you want to insert. Those names existed, or similar names, existed 47 years ago. So how, I mean, we're not really <laughs> that far away from where we were. Really, in common um, in common Bermuda grass. Okay, so looking for the objective, the effectiveness in common Bermuda grass teas in two golf courses in Hawaii. Okay, one common Bermuda grass tea at each of two golf courses was used to study the effect of bio dethatch and thatch away on thatch accumulation over five month period. Treatments at the two locations are listed in Table One. So let's look at table one. Hang on a second. Let me see if I can get here. Yeah, I can get. Yeah, there we go. So table one for those listening is titled "The Effect of Ethophon Spray on Defoliation." Oh wait, that's that's a different. Sorry, <laughs> that was I should have I should have <laughs> whited that out. That was from the article above this article. Sorry, table one. Here we go. All right, here we go. I'll have to just zoom out because it won't all fit in the, the page for people watching. Okay, so table one is titled The, the Effect of Bio Dethatch and Thatch Away on Thatch Measurements on Common Munigrass Teas at Two Locations in Hawaii. And the, the, the treatments were a control bio dethatch at, so this is grams per square meter, square meter which is, um, 
me get this down a little bit here, which is um, in pounds per thousand. So 4.9 grams per square meter is one pound per thousand. This is two pounds per thousand. And then I don't know what this is. What's 19? What's 19 divided by 4.9? 19.6 divided by 4.9 is four pounds. So one pound, two pounds, and four pounds and zero. So he has a rate basically in one one location of bio dethatch. In the second location, he has um, a non-treated, and he has one and two pounds of bio dethatch, and he has one and two pounds of thatch away. Okay. So those are the treatments that he put out. And that's the only table in the whole study, by the way. We're, we're about finished, but let me explain what he did. Let me get this out. Okay. Materials were applied with a drop type fertilizer spreader on plots in a randomized complete block design. Okay, that's not a big deal. And watered in. Teas were watered twice weekly. Okay, da da da. Thatch was measured at the time the treatments were applied in June of 1957. Dang, that was that was 20 years before they published it. They did it in 57 and they published it in 76. Okay, and at approximately one, two, and five months afterwards. So they sample it on the day of, and they sample it after the one month, after two months, and after five months. Thatch measurements were made by removing a 10 centimeter, which is um, like four inch diameter plug from each plot. So they took probably a four inch little plugger and they removed a, a core from each plot and, and random and, and measuring the thatch layer with a ruler at two points, 180 degrees apart. So if you remember from our thatch study, when we're talking about how do we measure thatch, we find that using a caliper or using a ruler to measure the depth tends to be the, the most reliable method, which is something you can do yourself. You don't need to go buy a, a thatch meter or a compressor or a scale or oven to dry it out. You don't need to go buy all that stuff. You can simply buy a ruler or a caliper and you're going to get the same numbers or very close to the same level of precision and accuracy that I would as a scientist. I would, I would use that as well. So that's a very appropriate way. And we're going to go over a paper too, actually, that doesn't use that. And we have to be mindful that the results might be true. I'm not saying it's inaccurate, but the method they use to measure it is certainly of greater variability than using a ruler. So my point being is the results here should be pretty solid because they did a, a method that's pretty sound. For the purpose of measurement, thatch was defined as the organic material between the soil surface and the green vegetation. Now we're not, so they didn't separate like the mat from the thatch, which we talked about in a previous paper. The two thatch measurements from each plug were averaged in the data subjected to now. So they measured it on one side of the thatch, they'd moved it, me measured it on 180 degrees on the other side of the, of the plug, and they took the average and that was one number. Normal maintenance practices in play were carried out on the test areas throughout the experiment period. So it was a golf course, it was active, they were still playing. No dethatching was done during the experimental period, so they didn't do any mechanical removal at all of the thatch. No significant, and here we go, no significant differences in thatch thickness were found between any of the treatments at either location on any date of measurement. <laughs> I, li I like it when, when uh, I, I, I don't like it when people do like this and this and this and this, but I like it when people do that, like to prove, a, to show the, to emphasize the point. It says, no significant difference in thatch thickness were found between any of the treatments at either of the locations on any date. <laughs> so basically he's saying, knock off the, the silliness, goofballs, okay? This stuff doesn't work. Stop selling it to, to people. That's what he's basically telling these, telling the salesman is what he's saying here. It doesn't work. We didn't see anything. We can't, I guess we can't say it doesn't work. So as a, as a scientist, I can't say it doesn't work. But as a practitioner, as a, as a pragma, pragmatist, it doesn't work. Stop selling it to my people. You're, you're fleecing our industry. These results are in agreement with those of Koth, to, and this is another article called, this was in the USJ Green section, Koth of 1972, who found little improvement in the rate of thatch breakdown from various treatments, including providing energy sources for soil microbes. So you're going to see some sugar products come out in the next couple of papers I'm going to talk about. The idea behind the sugars is that you're providing soluble carbon to microbes to hyperinflate their population. I will say this. There is very clear evidence that the application of soluble carbon to the soil will hyperinflate microorganisms or their activity. There's virtually no debate on that. Okay. 
I don't think anybody's, you're going to find any knowledgeable soil scientist who's going to say, no, applying, you know, this, the right, the right rate, applying, applying appropriate rates of soluble carbon will not increase microbial activity. It very likely will, but I'm not measuring soil microbial activity. Couldn't care less about that. What I care about is its effect on thatch, right? And, and so don't get, again, here's an idea. This is epistemology. So don't get, um, don't fall into the trap that because this A causes B and B causes C, therefore A will cause C, you know, that doesn't work that way. So soluble carbon will increase microbial activity, increase microbial activity oftentimes will increase, um, thatch degradation. So therefore soluble carbon will increase thatch degradation. It doesn't always work that way. And we're going to show papers that will show that, okay, there will be some, a paper or two that I showed that there is some, probably something going on there, but don't automatically assume that. Most of the time, it's better to assume the opposite, to assume it's not going to do anything until someone shows some evidence that it will. But here it is where they showed this particular paper in 1972, where they're providing energy sources for soil microbes. So they're talking about soluble carbon, exposing, and then the other one was exposing the turf to intermittent mist to improve microbial activity and adding inoculum of selected bacteria. So in the case, in that case where they're doing all those, they're adding moisture, they're adding selected bacteria and they're adding soluble carbon. Essentially they didn't, they didn't, and it says the, the improvement in rate of thatch breakdown from various treatments who found little improvement. Basically there was virtually essentially nothing happened when they did all those three in 1972 from those products. But, but again, don't take that and run with that and say, it's never going to happen. Okay. There will, there will be occasions where there may be some benefit to that. And I'll show you evidence of that in the next, in the next couple of papers. The Letterbor Scogli paper, which we we went over, if you remember, if you haven't um, listened to that article, um, that podcast, you can go back and pull that up. It's from 1967. Also provided energy sources for soil microorganisms with no effect on rate of thatch breakdown. So another article says it didn't do it. And this was from the early times, 60s and so forth. So we developed some things since then. But back then, they, they never, they didn't show any effect. In view of this study, which clearly shows that thatch is composed of sclerified tissues and is high in lignin content, it is not surprising that adding inoculum of microorganisms or providing extra energy sources is ineffective. It's not surprising that's ineffective in breaking down thatch. They're saying it's not. The Schubert, uh, which was 1965, this was just a lignin thing, lists only a few wood rotting fungi as being capable of breaking down lignin. So this little guy right here, Schubert, 1965, lignin biochemistry is what the next paper is going to use as a means to justify inclusion of white rot fungi as, as to, to measure thatch breakdown. Okay, so it says right here, if you want to know, let me just highlight that. If you want to know where all this sort of stuff came from, it came from this. Oh, I can't highlight that. Oh, what happened? Did I screw something up? Oh, man. I am the world's worst. I need some help. Let me highlight this. This Schubert paper, this Schubert, not paper, it's a book, I think it is, is where all the idea behind Laycase kind of generated from. It, it, it was published in 65, and what it's saying, it provides the biochemistry of lignin and how and what is likely to break it down. And it says right here, only a few wood-rotting fungi will break that down. So you're talking about fungus that breaks down tree stumps that's what can have an effect on thatch because it's so resistant due to the high lignin content okay and in the next paper which i'll go over tomorrow morning that's when they start they didn't start but they they that paper looks at that specific concept on thatch and we're going to find tomorrow that there may be some benefit to that and then from there we saw the burnt paper in 1990 uh, no, no, that wasn't the burnt paper 1990. It was another paper he did. But we saw the, uh, I'm going to say Paul Raymer, but the first author was another student of his, I think. But we saw some more papers come out in the last 10, 15 years that looked specifically at an enzyme that is exuded or generated by white rot fungi. Okay. So last, last paragraph is, while the cultural practices of top dressing, vertical mowing, and airifying are time consuming, they remain the only effective methods of thatch control. Now, this was in 19, whatever it was, 1976. So it was the, that was the only effective method at that time. 
But he does mention that the Schubert has says this is the only thing that will break it down as far as we know. And it's, it wasn't until the 80s and 90s when people started kind of messing around with that. And then really, really in the last 10 or 15 years, since 2012 or so, have there been two or three pretty solid papers come out that show there's a pretty good chance that this particular enzyme from a white rot fungi uh, is likely going to help you. It's not going to remove it necessarily. It's not going to do that. But it certainly will have an effect on its, on its rate of production. So let's look at this table before we go. I don't know if I can zoom into this without and get it on the page. I can't. Um, let's look at this paper before we go. So it's the effects of bio dethatch and thatch away on thatch measurements of common Bermuda grass teas at two locations in Hawaii over a f- over a fifty month test period. I thought they said it was over five months. Yeah, it's five. That's a typo, or that's a typo. It says five months, but uh, this says fifty. I'm pretty sure that's a typo. Anyway, what they did was they measured thickness with the centimeters and the dates of measurement in 1975. When it started off, the control was 1.4 and all the other products were 1.7, 1.7, 1.6, 1.7, 1.6, all the way down, right? The control of the other golf course was 1.7. So you're looking at about a half an inch, a little more than a half an inch of thatch on this uh, Bermuda grass, on these Bermuda grass golf courses. And you can see the control went from 1.4 to 1.7 to 2 to 1.7. There's a little bit up and down with the control. Nothing's going on in terms of the, the, the thatch control, but it kind of 1.7 to 1 to 2, it kind of goes up now. And all the other ones do the same thing. There's no difference. Bio dethatch applied at one pound or applied at four pounds. Not, statistically, they're all exactly the same. Okay. There is zero difference. If you go down to bio dethatch and thatch away, you'll see that all these, you know, whether it's one month down the road or two months down the road or five months down the road, you won't see any difference from from the development of thatch. And what I what I like um, about stuff like this is is that whenever manufacturers or distributors will see some of stuff like this, particularly when it comes into the world of soil testing, they'll say, "Oh, um, you didn't set the study up right," or "Oh, you didn't run the study for long enough," or "Of course, it's not going to happen there because the CEC is too too low there." They always come up with some excuse. Well, why it didn't work. Okay. There is always some reason. And sometimes there's a valid reason. Tylenol is not going to cure your headache if you don't start off with a headache. Okay. It's not, you don't need, you know, well, I didn't really notice any difference when I took the Tylenol. Yeah. Because you were, there was no headache to begin with. I didn't really notice any application to um, the turf response to applying uh, foliar iron. Yeah. Because your turf is already at a nine on the color scale. You're not going to see it go to a 10. So there is some value or validity to those arguments. Well, you didn't set it up right. But it's literally every time we see it, dozens, literally dozens of times we'll do a study and it's the same result over and over and over. And every time, oh, they didn't do the study right. <laughs> they didn't run it for long enough. They didn't do it on the right soil, the right term. You know, there's always some excuse given by manufacturers and distributors to, you know, dismiss results that are not in favor of their product, Right. So be mindful of that. <laughs> these scientists, assume, I'm assuming these scientists, one of them was an assistant professor of horticulture. And, oh, one of them was a, yeah, J.P. Barr. Oh, this is even better. So so Murdoch, the, the author Murdoch was an associate professor at, in horticulture in, at the University of Hawaii. And J.P. Barr was a technical sales and product man, development representative for the company that sold the products. So one of the salesmen was on this article, and the article said it didn't work. That's even better. That just puts a little icing on my cake for Monday morning. So usually it's the opposite. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll spin the information. But this particular case, the salesman, the product development manager for the company that made the product for, yeah, that's hilarious for occidental chemicals of hawaii that's what he was the representative for and it says the product didn't work okay so so you know it's 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 not entirely healthy to be completely resistant you don't want to be completely resistant you want to be healthy healthily skeptical is what you want and you know but not be resistant to change which is the flaw that i've ran into many times i find myself sometimes being resistant and i don't want to do that 
You don't want to be resistant to information or to change or information that might change your position. If someone comes in and says, you're doing this and you're doing it wrong, you don't want to be resistant to that because maybe you are doing it wrong. But you want to be healthily skeptical, you know. Think about it skeptically, you know, critically think your way through there and, and, and see what evidence they have compared to what evidence you have and kind of weigh it out on both sides. So that's my take for today, guys. Um, the lawn sauce says bugs versus thatch is one thing. Would be curious about bugs for root uptake promoters. Would be interested in your thoughts on uh, Korean natural farming. Yeah, I don't know about Korean natural farming. The lawn sauce, I'm not familiar with that. If it's done by hand or done by more labor or natural products, I'm not I'm not sure what you mean by that lawn sauce. But um, I would say that perfect that, that's a very good question okay so you know what am i uh, i'll be curious about bugs up about bugs for root uptake promoters so how and this is what this channel is about okay i don't know much about bugs for root uptake promoter well i know a little bit but let's assume i don't know anything about bugs for root uptake promoters how would i go find that go to what how i would start is i'd go to turfgrass information file and i'd look at you know um you know, that topic, I would search for root uptake by microorganisms or, um, um, you know, beneficial fungi for increased nutrient uptake or something along those lines where there are some organisms that do enhance the uptake of roots by forming a biotic symbiotic relationship with the roots. I would look that up, but you also have to remember that exists Okay, so let's say the let's say the let's say the microorganism that increases nutrient uptake from via by by forming a, a an infection into the root basically, and it and it helps the plant. Let's say that exists, and let's call it microorganism A. So micro A does this. This product contains micro A. Therefore, this product should do that. That's what I said earlier. A results in B. B results in C. Therefore, A results in C. You can't do that. You have to look at you have to have evidence for that product because I have no idea if what's in that product is actually in that product. And even if it is, I don't know if that specific microorganism that's in that product would, would result in similar results as that. I know it sounds, you know, like I'm being, you know, too skeptical, but believe me, I've gone down these roads. <laughs> I've developed products in, and I've, I've worked with other people in the company that develop products. And I said, how do you know that works? Oh, well, so-and-so published a paper on that, on that active ingredient. I know that. How do you know this product works? Well, this product is supposed to contain the macronutrient. I know that. How do you know this product works? Show me the evidence. And they never did. They released a product, sold hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it did jack squat. And, they, and did they come back to me? No, they don't want to come back. And, you know, I have to explain why it didn't, it didn't work. I don't know why it didn't work, but we had no evidence that it would work. You're trying to connect A to B and B to C, and therefore A is C. It doesn't work that way. Okay, I've 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 gone down those roads. I've seen it many, many, many times, where we just assume manufacturers and distributors will assume that this paper shows this and this product contains it. Therefore, it should do that. They assume that that's the case, and it doesn't always work that way. Okay. Anyway, so I, that's how I would start off on that the lawn sauce. How how bugs in a jug and and for root uptake, I'd go to TGIF and start searching for it. I'd go to Google Scholar and search for that. Find authors that have worked in that area and read their papers and see what they say. But it have to be it's, I'm very very likely you have to be specific to a microorganism and hopefully specific to a to a product. For example, the the Raymer papers that we're going to be going over, where he's talking about lay case. And there's, there may be product, and a lay case clearly is showing a beneficial effect on thatch, uh, reduction of thatch growth. There's pretty clear evidence of that at this point. And uh, this product contains lay case, therefore this product should do that. Doesn't, that doesn't necessarily work that way. It needs to be the right enzyme. It needs to be applied at the right rate in the same time frame, hopefully, as they did it with the similar turf grasses. There needs to be um, some awareness that just because the product contains it, doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to result in the same results as the paper showed because they got their lay case from extremely pure source sigma aldridge which is extremely expensive okay and it works but that doesn't mean that the product contains it's going to work it might but it might not so we you know we have to be aware of that before you just jump in the pool with both feet and there's no water in the pool okay 
All right, guys. Um, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. Uh, like I said, I'm going to try to get things on the pod, on the podcast platforms here soon. I'm going to be doing, there's going to be some fun stuff before the end of the year. I hope I'm working on it. Some people listening are aware, know where what I'm talking about, but, um, we're going to do a, a couple of interesting, fun things. Uh, maybe not on my channel, but we're going to do some really interesting, fun things, hopefully before the end of the year. So look forward to that. I'll be, I'll be announcing it here and somewhere else, I'm sure. Um, but we're, 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 the future looks bright for this channel and for others. So I really appreciate you all watching. I hope you have a great day. I'll be back tomorrow at, um, at 10 AM Eastern. And that'll be the last uh, episode before Thanksgiving. Okay, guys, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Be safe out there. Be kind. See you tomorrow.